This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. Thank you for finding us again. No Stop Lights. I want to thank our sponsors, Pepsi of Florence, Carolina Bank, Mickey Fins, Marlboro PD Electric Co-op. We have some new sponsors in this um I guess different iteration of No Stop Lights, Francis Marion University, McLeod Health, McCall Farms, Victors, and PLC Commercial Property. Um, we we kind of mentioned briefly in our last and first, last of the ones you've been made available, first of the ones in the new studio downtown Florence, and, and I, I want to I wanna give credit or blame to our next guest. Um, Dr. Carter, Dr. Fred Carter, Frank, president of Francis Marion University is with us. Good good, good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Whatever time, there's a little beauty in the podcast because it's not a designated time slot. You can watch, listen, uh, whenever you choose to. But but first of all, welcome. Thank you. To, the, uh, to, to No Stop Lights in our podcast. But but I want to give you some blame, some credit, some um, some whatever, whatever you deserve. Dr. Carter has always felt, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm ad-libbing here. He doesn't know I'm going to say this. But, but I, I perceive he's always felt his job didn't stop at the gates of Francis Marion University. Um, there are some academics in traditional fashion that do believe their job stops at the gates and, uh, and on the grounds or campus of the university. Dr. Carter, I feel and have always felt, believes he has uh, another objective, and that is to contribute and be involved in the community of which Francis Marion resides. And I applaud him for that. Um, is he a non-conventional college president? I'll let you decide after we spend the next 30 or 40 or 50 minutes or however long uh, we decide to. But the one thing I've always admired about Dr. Fred Carter is his willingness to go places that historically college presidents have not. And when you do that, you accept um, some criticism. You, you accept some uh, some judgment of people who say college presidents don't need to do that. College presidents should stay on the confines of their campus. Why, and, and I guess I'm leading with a question, why do you feel that it's always been partially your job to become intimately involved in the community outside of outside of the campus and university? Well, it's a good question, Ken. Let, let me begin, though, by, by welcoming you to, to, to Francis, this Francis Marion country here, mm -hmm. okay? We, we had some extra room in this building simply because we, uh, we won't be able to start our physical therapy program in the accreditation cycle for two and a half more years, so we invited the Post and Courier to come in with us, and we invited the uh, no no uh, no stoplights to come in with us. Two critically important voices across the PD that, frankly, we benefit from having on our our own campus. We not only benefit because it becomes the core for for much of that communication that comes goes out, but because, frankly, the Post and Courier and Ken Yu. Um, hire some of our interns and allow them to, to particularly our, our journalistic interns, our PR interns, and our marketing interns, require some very, acquire some very, very practical skills as a result of the opportunities they get working with. So thank you. Well, very, very kind of you, and you've been very supportive of what we're trying to do here, and it is somewhat of collaboration, and I'm honored to collaborate with Francis Marion, but you're not skating on the question. See, see, Rev. He's got he's got a political background, and I knew that. Uh, and we'll get to that in just a bit. But but in all honesty, Dr. Carter, I have always admired your willingness to get involved in things that may not directly have Francis Marion University's involvement. Why? 
Well, so, so the broader sense is I've spent half my life inside the academy, academe, and I've spent half of my life working in public service outside as a county administrator, working for the governor with budget control board. So I guess I've seen both sides of that. I've seen, I've seen the academy and what it can provide and, and frankly what it can't provide. And I've seen public service and what it can provide and what it can't provide. And, and it seems to me that I'm in a unique position, at least for these few years, to kind of reach out and, and pull those two aspects of, of this job together. On a more if you permit me, on a more narrow scope, you know, when I when I got to Francis Marion 25 years ago, I heard people tell me over and over again how far that six miles was between the city of Florence and Francis Marion University, because the the, the argument was that the city wasn't having much to do with Francis Marion, and Francis Marion wasn't very extensively involved with the city. And as you know, we began reaching out. Frankly, the university and the city began reaching out to close that distance between the, the university and, uh, and the city of Florence. Similarly, I could go on and talk about Marion and Mullins and Dillon and Marlboro and Chesterfield and the like. This community has been so receptive to any overtures coming from Francis Marion over the past few years. And those overtures should come from the college. We're not only the educational center of this region, we're the social center, we're the cultural center, we're the economic center, and we're the arts center for this entire region. Why do you feel you have been so successful? Because you have, and I'm not asking you to blow your own horn, but but I know a little bit about where you come from and what you're about and what your past and history is. I mean, share as much of that as you'd like with our listeners who don't know or viewers who don't know much other than you being the current and 25-year president of Francis Marion University well, I came from a background that many of our, our, our students came from. I grew up in a mobile home. My parents had, uh, my father had the equivalent of a sixth grade education. I'm not sure that my father, my mother had an education, formal education, that was that advanced. So early on, I kind of, I understood this notion of, of what poverty was all about. I, di I didn't need to take a, a seminar and involve myself in a program to understand what poverty is. I kind of grew up in poverty. I, I uh, you know, we, we, we frequently joke about, we joke in my family about, 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 you know, no meat Thursdays and Fridays, okay? That didn't have anything to do with the fact that, that, that you know, I was Catholic, although I am. It had to do with the fact that the, the, the meat budget only ran essentially from Friday until the following Wednesday, okay? And then it was greens and potatoes and the like for uh, for Thursday and Friday. So I, you know, I, I understand that. But but let me also say say this, Ken. It wasn't, man. That wasn't a shortcoming in my life. That that turned out to be one of the most blessed things that ever occurred in my life. My family was close. I had nurturing parents because they they understood how close we needed to be together. And, and one of the things I understood early on in my life was that my parents wanted me to get a more, an education more than anything else in the world, which bound us even more closely together. So, so yeah, I, enter, I guess I can, I can clearly relate and associate with the students that are across this region, but even more, man, I can associate with those parents across this region, particularly those who never had the opportunity 
to get much of an education or certainly never had the opportunity to go to college in terms of how badly they want their sons and daughters to have the opportunity to get a college education, to do something more than they've had the opportunity to do in, in, in their life. Were you aware of that when you took the job, or did that become a reality after the fact? You, you know, I, I, of course, it's a, you, know, you, you, grew, you grow up with a background like that, and, 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 and many people in this community have a similar background. You're, you're, never, you're never far away from an understanding of those forces. When I got to Francis Marion, though, one thing I discovered, one is I discovered a wonderful faculty that reached out and put their arms around me and brought me in as a president and said, look, tell us what you need and we're willing to do it for you. And by the way, a lot of those outreach programs come as a result of a faculty who's willing to step out of the classroom and go out there to those communities, those rural communities, and to do the kinds of things that other faculties around the state of South Carolina don't do. So that was, that's one part of it. The second part of it, though, be, beyond the notion of, 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 this, of, of this, this university, which was, was kind of created in 1970 to focus on attending to the needs of the rural e region called the PD of South Carolina, man, everything about this university fit me and my family like a glove from day one. You know, I, lo I, I, I love the community spirit. I love the fact that you're dealing with plain folks every day. I love the fact that there are parents who will come in and talk to me and are comfortable talking to me because, frankly, I don't sit at my desk in a coat and tie every day. I know that there are many people that are appalled by that, but I can tell you there are a lot of parents that feel more comfortable coming and talking to me because I'm dressed just like they are. Dr. Carter, so, so you're, you're insinuating, and, I, and I've got this written down verbatim, not a typical academic. You wear that with a badge of honor. I, I, I do. I, now, let me make this... But you're not intentionally insulting those who are typical academics. Listen, I, 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 I've done my share of publications. I'm proud of my academic record. I think my academic record earned me the presidency. But, no, I'm not content simply being an academic and sitting behind uh, the president's desk every every day. I, I, I want to get out and do other things. And you've done a lot of other things. Marine Corps, when? I was in the Marine Corps from 72 to 75, but, you know, I stayed on active, excuse me, I stayed in the reserves until I, I had 30 years. So I, I retired as a reserve. Okay, a man of accomplishment, you are, and, and you're a humble man, and I respect that, but you are a man of accomplishment. Being a, a Marine means what to you? Oh, it's it's everything. It, you know, the, you know the, the, the change never, never ends. I mean, it's, it's you know, you, you, you go through the Marine Corps process. Somebody, one day somebody hands you an Eagle Globe and Anchor that you earn. It's never given. It's always earned. Somebody hands you that Eagle Globe and Anchor, and that the change, the change is forever. You you just you know it's 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 always it's always a, a part of me, you know. I mean I you know and I I won't become modeling over this. Everyone who's ever worn a Marine Corps uniform will understand it quite with this. Every time Folly says, well, at some point we probably ought to talk about you know if you pass, what are the kinds of things? I said you know almost anything's negotiable except this, a color guard and a Marine Corps hymn.
That's not negotiable. You mentioned folly. I don't want to get in your personal life. That's unfair. But but the wife and kid of a public figure, and a college president is very much a, a public figure, lead a different life. I mean, there is a, uh, I've been with you a couple of Thursday nights recently, and you're doing the thing. I mean, it, it's it's inviting people to uh, attend an event that Francis Marion has a big hand and a big part in. Um, does that stress, how do you and the family get away from that? How, how do you, I mean, as a former politician, I can relate very much so to that. But how does Dr. Fred Carter kind of get away from that? Well, let me draw, draw the distinction here, because you and I had an opportunity to send, our families had an opportunity to spend nights together watching Herman's Hermits and Don McLean, okay? And man, that wasn't a chore at all. Okay, I'll do that even. Well, I want to personally yeah. thank you on the airwaves. I got to see Don McLean sing American Pie in the county I grew up in. And I don't care if he's 178 years old, Got played about two hours. Uh, in his upper 70s. But, but go back to the, the, the life of a public person and, and the, the family time. Kind of walk me through how you balance that. You, you know, so most nights there's some types of events. Some, some are more enjoyable than others, okay? <laughs> I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy going to a sporting event. I love men and women's basketball, Francis Marion. Love our soccer teams. I, I'm I'm crazy about our volleyball teams. Love baseball and softball. We we have some great sports. Those those are never a chore to attend. Going over and listening to a dry speaker speak on, you know, I'm not going to mention a subject here, okay? But but on any subject, okay? At 7:30 at night and coming home at 9:15. That gets, that gets a little more wearisome. Now, I'm not saying I don't come on more informed and more enlightened on that particular subject, but it's not quite like listening to Peter Noon and Herman Turner. But there you okay. go. Uh, okay, the first time I ever went and paid you a visit, it, I was on county council. You were negotiating, uh, you know, between the Francis Marion University, the Bruce Lee Foundation, the county, the city, as you always have been. And you need to be around the table when those conversations are being had. But I remember a mutual friend of ours suggested I come out and talk to Dr. Carter, and I read a little bit. The first thing that came up was Governor Mark Sanford's chief of staff. So I go out to FMU expecting to see one of these dyed-in-the-wool ideologues, one of these guys that just is not going to budge, not going to give an inch. He believes in this uh, libertarian philosophy, and you know, I'm driving out. I'm going, how in the hell does a college president subject himself to being a former chief of staff of a libertarian-leaning, um, ideologically-driven former governor. How did you and Governor Sanford hook up, and how did you, at the end of the day, become his chief of staff? You know, it's, it, there's an interesting story about, about Governor Sanford, who's, who's a marvelous man, who's, who's, who's a very thoughtful and, and witty and sensible man. But, but he came and visited me during the course of the campaign, and um, we had lunch together at the university, and uh, it was right in the heart of the primary. And, and I don't know if you remember that primary, Ken, but Bob, but let's see, uh, uh, Bob Peeler was was a candidate in that can can in that uh, in that primary. I think that I think uh, the governor uh, may have been uh, current governor. I think Henry may may very well have been a a candidate in that campaign. 
uh, Gresham Barrett was a candidate. I mean, there were, as I remember, there were probably seven or eight candidates in that campaign. I remember Mark Sanford looked at me and he said, well, you know, uh, Fred, you've been around a while. How would you, uh, how would you, how would you rank me in this campaign? And I said, well, I'll be honest with you. I said, Congressman, I don't think you have much of a chance. I said, I think that, uh, I think Bob Peeler is a, is a winsome, uh, guy with a lot of broad support within the Republican Party. And frankly, I think you'll be facing in the general election, Jim Hodges is an incumbent who, who I think will be well-funded. I think, uh, I think Jim is a witty, bright guy, and I think you're going to face some, some difficulty. So, you know, I, d I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I don't think you have a chance at getting this, this election. So the next, I, the next I heard from him, he won the election. So I'm driving onto Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. I'm, I'm, I'm giving a reserve, a, a reserve seminar up there that weekend at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. It's Friday night about 8.30 and my cell phone rings. So I immediately pull aside the phone because I'm on, a, I'm on a military installation and you can't take a phone call while you're driving. Just make that point, okay? And it's Mark Sanford. And he says, uh, Fred, this is, uh, this is Mark Sanford. I said, I, I know who you're, Congressman. He said, yeah, I'm the guy that you said couldn't win the election. I said, well, you did. I was wrong, and you were right. Congratulations. And he said, well, there's something I'd like for you to do next week, if you don't mind. Do you mind coming down Wednesday afternoon? Do you have some time to drive down? I'd like for you to sit down and meet with, with me and, and, and Jenny in Mount Pleasant. We just want to talk to you about a few things. So, you know, I didn't think much about it. I went that, you know, finished my stuff that weekend, came back, and I assumed that he probably wanted to talk about, you know, how you, how you structure an office, how you begin that process and the like and and so I went down and and I spent about three hours with Jenny and Mark and and at the end of the evening Mark turned to me and said you know we really want you to be to be our chief of staff will you be willing to do that and um, I told him you know I, I'd like to I'd like to go back and talk to my board and uh, before I made any any determination about that do you mind if I said do you mind if I take a couple of days. He said, no, not all. So I'm driving back. The first thing I think about when I get in the car is, and I, I swear to God, I'm not simply saying this because I'm sitting here. The first thought that came to my mind is, man, I do not want to lose my job as president of Francis Marion University. That's the best job I've ever had in my life. That's a wonderful job. So what, whatever else emerges here, I do not want to lose that job. So I'm driving back, and I call the, my board chair back then, Robert Lee, who's, who's just a fine man, has always been a fine leader. He's been served as, I guess, board two times during my tenure as president. He's been a remarkable leader. And I lay out to Robert, and I said, so the, the governor's asked this, and, he's, and Robert's response is, we can work it out. We can work it out. What do you want to do, Fred? What do you want to do? We can work it out. 
So I asked Robert to give me night to think it over. I called him next morning. I said, what about if we did this? What about if the board gave me a sabbatical for a year? And what about if I could work out with the Sanfords so that I would spend the first year as his chief of staff simply helping structure his office and get started? And as it turned out, that worked out well for, for Jenny and Mark, and it worked out well for the board. My board was very gracious with us in that process. And uh, so for a year, I drove home every night from, from Columbia and, uh, and, and stayed at Florence and would, would go back to, to work the next morning. Now, some of that had to do with the fact that, that my son at that time, I think my son was six years old or seven years old, and I just didn't want to miss that. But, um, but I'm, deeply, I'm deeply indebted to the Sanfords for agreeing to work out that situation. And so at the end of the first year, Mark did come to me, and, and I guess it was October, and he said, you know, would you give some thought to stay? And I said, I can't, Mark. I gave my word. I, I want to stay here for a second because I've always wondered about your perspective here. You're a college president. That is a nonpartisan position. You spent a lot of your life speaking and working with people who are partisan out of necessity. There is a Republican, there is a Democrat. There are constituencies that expect certain things of certain people in elected office. How have you maintained such a good relationship with people who have political perspectives that, that conflict with one another, and we got to figure out a way to move the ball down the field anyway? You know, Ken, I try to look beyond, I try to look beyond the party, you know, the, the interesting thing, my, my friend Stephen Wakila always laughed at the fact that we became very, very close friends at a time when he was very, very conservative. I mean, very, very liberal. And I was moderately conservative. And, and he always laughed at the fact that during the, the, those years that we, we became close and closer and closer, we may have crossed each other in that process. You know, that's not an atypical thing with, with close friends. I mean, you, you and I have had conversations before, okay, in which I'm clearly on many issues more moderate than you, and we'll cross each other ideologically sometimes in the nature of the discussion. Because when you move beyond issues and you talk about constituencies and people and you talk about specific circumstances, man, it's not ideology anymore. It's people's lives. And that's when everything changes. Well, and, and I want to say this to you publicly. You've never, I mean, as far as I know, you've never insulted anyone because of their political beliefs, however disagreeable that uh, they, they may have been. I, I want to get you to, to comment on this. I mean, I host a political radio show, and I'm conservative, and you know that, and we've discussed some of this. And, and for the record, Dr. Carter and I sat down with a New York Times reporter discussing the likelihood or not of Donald Trump being uh, the nominee, and, and, and we didn't all see sing off the same sheet of music that day. Um, I'm concerned not of academic, but some of the elite universities. Their, their, their disconnect from... I, I guess the people that attend Francis Marion University, do the elite universities have too much sway 
in the American government? Do the eight or nine or ten universities that provide all the administrators that run the government, all the media newsrooms in America are, are stockpiled with these seven, eight, nine, ten elite universities? What's your, I mean, you're, you're an academic, technically, you're a college president. What, what is your opinion of these few universities that have so much influence in the body politic and media? I think that for the most part, universities need to be very, very careful in the decades ahead, but for different reasons that you might imagine. I don't think that the threats that we pose to American public are issues related to, to, to diversity and equity. I, I don't think it's related to CRT. I don't think it's related to tenure or freedom of speech. I think it's related to our own arrogance and the fact that we've become largely non-communicative with the non-communicative with the people that matter most in, in American society. We've lost the the ability to interact with those folks that we meet every single day. And that look to us to provide the kind of leadership and guidance. Look, I'm not you know, if, if, you, if you had my faculty in here and you, you talked to my faculty, you would find I'm not a big fan of the American university presidency, okay? I, frankly, I'll be honest with you. I think the idea that you have inaugurations for university presidents are absurd. I think that you have big events associated with installing them in offices are absolutely absurd. I mean, Jesus... Christ, we're supposed to be the leaders of society with regarding to dividing solutions for people who have complex problems. We're not going to do that sitting on perches or sitting on heels. That's just not going to happen. But by the way, you know, my comments aren't related exclusively to the Harvards and the Yales and the Princetons. They're also related to people like Gordon Gee at West Virginia University, who goes out there and over-projects essentially what his enrollment is, then has to cut his budget back, has to cut all these programs back, has to lay off faculty who have been working hard simply because he overestimated, okay? Come on, I'm still waiting for him to apologize to his faculty for the mistake he made. How so, so it's not just the Ivy Leagues. It's any institution that thinks it's too big for its britches. You had an opportunity to go to a more prestigious university. Most folks would perceive the College of Charleston to be more prestigious than Francis Marion. You passed, and you passed quicker than we thought you would. I was involved in a meeting that was intended to try and entice you to not consider the College of Charleston. What about... Francis Marion, did you love so much that you passed on what most academics would perceive to be a little better opportunity? Well, I, I taught at the College of Charleston for 10 years. I love the College of Charleston. It's a wonderful institution. It has a fine faculty. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful place, a great curriculum. It serves a terrific purpose. And as I said, it, it has a, a wonderful faculty. It has the second best faculty in the state of South Carolina. Okay. Listen, the truth of the matter is, when I arrived at, San, at Francis Marion in 1999, I found the institution I need to be at for the rest of my life, okay? Or at least as long as the institution will have me. Those, 
those are my kids of Francis Marion. I, I don't, you know, I, College of Charleston's a great place. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need to be teaching 40% of the kids that are from out of state. I need to be teaching 96% of the kids that are from South Carolina. I need to be teaching 40% of a student body that's first-generation college students. That's that. That's what I do, and that's what I enjoy doing most. Well, and one thing that you've taken a lead on, and I, and I want to I want to segue to this. You have better than anybody I know in academia, and I'm not blowing smoke. I don't have any reason to do that. You better than anybody that I know have designed curriculum around the economy you are a participant in. Um, I, I'm, I'm not... I, I, God bless people with Shakespearean theater degrees and Greek literature degrees. I mean, I'm a Jeffersonian. Jefferson believed in the era of enlightenment and John Locke and, and a well-rounded society. But it seems to me that you have insisted a Francis Marion and your leadership to make sure we're providing a workforce for the economy we exist in, um, health care. Uh, being a big part of that. Kind of walk me through how you make those determinations. Sure. First of all, let me let me tell you how much I enjoy literature and the arts. I mean, my 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 hobby is reading. I, I'd rather spend an afternoon with a group of poets and novelists than anybody I know, okay? <laughs> and fortunately, I have some wonderful poets and, and novelists on my faculty and fine arts people. I love them dearly. But But one of the things I understood about Francis Marion early on, we're a poor institution. Okay, and if I come back in another life and I get to 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 be a university president, I might, I might try to find a place with just a little more money than Francis Marion. Although, we had to do some things early on to try to rectify that situation, and the way to rectify that situation was to go around to talk to prospective donors, businesses, industries, some of the the commercial centers across our region and state about what do you need us to be. And what I heard from our hospitals early on was Francis Marion's a fine school, but geez, you don't have a nursing program, you don't have any health science programs, you don't have any, well, that was in 1999. You know, today in 2023, 32% of our students are majoring in some health science, okay? They're doing that because our hospitals and our medical centers around this region of the state reached out to Francis Marion, not only by helping us develop our curriculum, staff our labs, build our clinics, but by giving us money for scholarships to attract students to build those programs. I could go on and on with industries like Otis and, 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 uh, and Honda, uh, with regard to our engineering programs. Who would have thought Francis Marion, two, two and a half decades ago, would have one of the finest mechanical engineering programs and one of the finest industrial engineering programs in the state? Yeah, engineering technology, sure, we get that. But engineering, absolutely right. We have fine engineering programs. Those, those are the kinds of things we built largely to accommodate the industries that are around us in the region and also can, if you might, to solicit those donations that were so critically important to sustain our student scholarships at the institution. I'm very proud to tell you that in, in 25 years, that, that, that little institution out there has raised almost $120 million. 
So, and the a bulk of that money has gone into student scholarships. And it's not that little institution out there anymore. You made a determination at some point in time in your administrative leadership to have a footprint downtown. Why and how did that process evolve? Well, it, it first began, as you know, with Performing Arts Center, okay? Because there were there were there were a group of people in this town that were. Um, Beverly Hazelwood and Star Ward were, were the, the who 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 trailed me around, who who would follow me down dark streets at night, threatening me if I didn't didn't help them do something to to build a performing arts center. But but the real majesty of the performing arts center beyond the community is uh, is the Bruce and Lee Foundation and Eddie Floyd and and my dear wonderful friend. Lake Hugh Leatherman. I want to go there. I want to stop you right there because I had two names written down. I mean, you, you've crossed paths with a lot of people. I have seen up close and personal what happens when the three of you make your minds up. What, what in, in your words, Hugh Leatherman meant what to you? You know, Hugh Leatherman was like an older brother to me. Okay, we there there are few nights in which Hugh Leatherman and I did not have a conversation. When certainly every night they were in session, Hugh on the way back from Columbia would call and we would talk together on the phone almost the entire distance from Columbia until he got back to Florence. And we'd talk about all measure of things. It wasn't just politics. We'd talk about people, we'd talk about the community, we talked about but but may I remind you that here's a guy who grew up on a rural farm in North Carolina who had a background very, very similar to my own, okay? So, I mean, Hugh and I always had a very close linkage. We we kind of grew up in poverty, and we had to figure out a whole lot of this ourselves. Now, as as time went on and we worked together, and, you know, I first met Hugh 10 years before I came here when he was in the Senate and I was director of the Budget Control Board. Prior to that, I was in Campbell's staff. Campbell assigned me to work with Hugh. I got, um, you'll, you'll laugh at this, one of my assignments in the, in the Campbell administration was that, that prominent Democrats I got assigned to work with. And and one of the reasons Campbell told uh, told me that early on was he know he said you know Fred I, I I can't ever really figure out whether you're a Democrat or a Republican so I'm just going to ask you to work with the Democrats I think it'll work out better that way and you know what it did I made some linkages back there with people like Harriet Kaiserling and Bob Shaheen and and folks like that that have sustained me my entire life but Hugh Hugh was a unique was a unique friend. You 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 ever seal and cross that threshold with you, and man, you could you could do no wrong with him. He would be your friend forever. And frankly, I feel I was pretty much the same way. Eddie Floyd. Eddie Floyd, man, what a remarkable guy. You know, can I tell you a brief story sure about Eddie can. Floyd? One my favorite story about Eddie Floyd. I'm cleaning up in my office one night, and I'm, I'm making some notes on a sheet of paper. I'm about to introduce Eddie. I think he's getting the, um, the he's getting one of the the philanthropic awards in the community from from Lighthouse Ministries or or something. I think it was Lighthouse Ministries, and and my custod the, the the custodial lady who works in my office who who's just Hannah was just a wonderful lady. She she's She's retired now, but she she saw I was writing something on the 
the my sheet of paper about about Eddie Floyd. She said, "Oh, Dr. Carter, do you know Dr. Floyd?" And I said, "Yeah, I know Dr. Floyd. He's a good friend of mine." She said, "You know, my daddy, my daddy had to have serious surgery twenty years ago, and he was seeing Dr. Floyd." And Dr. Floyd told him about the surgery he had to have. My daddy came home and he thought about it and he said, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to see if I can work out some kind of plan with Dr. Floyd. So he went back to see Dr. Floyd. Didn't have any insurance. He said, you know, Dr. Floyd, I'm, can I pay you $20 a month for this surgery you're going to do? And Dr. Floyd looked at him, according to Hannah, and said, you're not going to do that. I tell you what we'll do. This surgery's on me. If I ever need that $20 a month from you, I'll come back to you and ask for it. There are a lot of stories like that about Eddie Floyd in this community. No, Eddie Floyd isn't simply a prominent surgeon who has a lot of money and owns a lot of property. Eddie Floyd's a man who has the biggest heart in this community, okay? And he has done so many things for so many people. And that Performing Arts Center was a big part. Okay, I'm going to give the two of you a compliment because I've been fortunate to cross paths with both of you and work on some things together with both of you. I think you have supersonic vision. I think you and Dr. Floyd have the ability to see further down the road than us mere mortals do. And, and I mean that in the most complimentary way. Uh, the visionary uh, abilities it takes to see uh, a performing arts center, a, 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 a little theater, a, a museum, a, a new judicial center. You've been intimately involved. Whether Francis Marion had been directly involved or not, you have been on the periphery and directly involved in, in, in a lot of that. How instrumental, how likely was that to have happened if not for the Bruce and Lee Foundation? Oh, many of these things wouldn't have happened without the Bruce and Lee Foundation. Hugh Leatherman brought us a lot of money from Columbia. Much of that money, and he, if Hugh were here, he would tell you this, much of that money was predicated on getting the private money coming in from Bruce and Lee. And then the mayor, Mayor Wakila, came in from the other direction and brought local money from the city. Look, I, some, of the most, some of the most enjoyable times in my life I spent was sitting at the table with Hugh and Eddie and Stephen Wakila, just talking about what could be if we could figure out a way to make it happen. You're very kind to me in, in terms of talking about the, the vision of Dr. Floyd, but let me tell you about that. I always looked where Dr. Floyd was gazing, and, and, and I tried to follow that gaze more than anything else with both Dr. Floyd and with Hugh Leatherman. I never wanted to let him down. I, if they were dependent upon me or Francis Marion to come through with our part of the deal, to build a building at this cost, or find a way to operate it reasonably, I was going to do that because those two guys, not only are they some of the t two of the most powerful men that I've known in my life, they were two of the most, most gracious, two of the most honorable men, the kind of men you never, never want to ever let down. And by the way, I don't want to leave my friend Stephen Wakila out of this either. What a wonderful mayor he was. What a terrific job he came in. All those expectations that people had about what a wretched mess he would make of this government, and I was one of them, okay? Man, were we wrong. 
what a leader he turned out to be. And he sat very comfortably at a table that, that, that included Floyd and Leatherman and Carter. Wakila held his place very, very well in that. Why is it important the city and county government have a, a respectful working relationship? Man, first of all, there's not enough money on either side for, for them to do, for either one to do it all comprehensively. And then there's so many functions that come together in that process. Look, I, you and I have laughed before about the, the deal the county made years ago, giving the water to the city and taking recreation from the city in return. Boy, that was a great deal, wasn't it? You know, you make all the money on water and sewer, you lead a ton, lose a ton on recreation. But but that's a good example as as to why the two entities have to work so closely together. Why why the chair of, of county council and the mayor have to be joined at the hip and why there have to be so many common areas developed uh, for, for cooperation, collaboration down the road, particularly in a county like Florence particularly in a county like Florence. Look, by, by geography, we're so truncated that you've got to kind of pull a lot of those disparate jurisdictions, municipalities together through that collaboration between city and county. What do you see for Florence over the next, or the PD region, not just Florence, but the PD region over the next 10, 15 years? You know, the the you and I've talked about this before, okay? And 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 and, I, and and I'll remind you of this discussion because it's a discussion that's almost circular. We're coming to a point where the truly great leadership of the city and county are aging, okay? We we've lost we've lost you. You know, I don't I don't think I I insult or or, or ex intended ex exhibit disrespect to to Eddie or Mark Bike or Haig Porter in terms of saying that that they're getting up there in age with regard to their to their leadership of the Bruce and Lee Foundation. Uh, Willard Doherty, who's been a fine chairman of county council, Willard's my age, okay. And while Willard and I would like to believe that we're we're spry young men, we're 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 really not. So so that generation of leadership that's that's given us some clear purposeful direction over the last 20 years is beginning to kind of to move aside. We're beginning to age out some of these positions. The, the, the critical question will be now, the expectation that we place on the next generation of leadership to serve the community, to force the, 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 the issues relative to collaboration and, and cohesion to focus on those things that serve the common good, not necessarily on individual political ambitions and the like. Okay. What is your what do you perceive your obligation to be to economic development as, as oh, president I, of the higher education, you know, uh, university in our in our community? What kind of I mean when 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 somebody goes out and tries to recruit an industry, whether it's city or county, to come to Florence, we're dealing with power and we're dealing with water and we're dealing with with infrastructure. But inevitably, and I've been in some of those meetings, can you provide me an educated workforce or not? And and the critical question on that one is it comes down to three major entities with regard to jurisdictions like this for providing that: the public university, the four-year university, the technical college. 
and the school districts, okay? If, if those three entities or, or that collection of entities can't work together collaboratively, we're failing economic development. And that's a critical part of our mission, okay? If education's the fundamental part of our mission, clearly the, the, the intertwining aspect of that are jobs and the ability to earn a good living and sustain the economy. That's almost as critically important to a university as simply educate. Why did you choose to not pursue football? I mean, that's off the beaten path, but I've always wondered, um, you know, Coastal's on television and people say, man, Francis Mann should have done X or should have done Y. You have been very comfortable in the decision you made at FDMU to not pursue college football. We have, um, early on, we had, we, we made a purposeful decision when we had some money, a little bit of money, to put it in the development of a nursing program. Okay. And that began our health sciences. So if you if you look at Coastal and 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 every president of Coastal, all three presidents have been close friends of mine. They're fine men, they're good people. They they decided to invest in in in, in football and develop those programs. Now, to be sure, when they came out of NAIA, they chose division one. My predecessors chose division two which set a little different foundation for where you, you began. But uh, the, the development of that decision to, to choose nursing led to the growth of all of those uh, health administration programs we have now, and it's led to the growth of three distinct doctoral programs that we have that serve this region, all in the health sciences. You know, I, I don't know... You know, I, I still deal with the issue associated with football every day. But the, the truth of the matter is, in a community that's located 95 miles from the Gamecocks and, and just down the road from, from the Tigers, it's not quite that easy to build a football team. What I didn't want to do, and I mean this with no disrespect, I didn't want to build the kind of football program that Pembroke would have or the kind of football program that Newberry would have or the kind of football program even that Presbyterian would have when, when you're, where you're drawing 1,100 people to a game. What, what does that get you? I'll tell you what that gets you. That gets you spending $5 million a year in expenses, scholarships, coaches, salaries, facilities, and the like, and generating maybe $800,000 a year in gate revenues. You know, I think back to my budget and control board days, 800,000 $800, on the revenue side, you know, almost 500 million on the revenue side. That, I mean, on the expenditure side, that's not a very, very good balance in the process. Keep your budget control board hat on for a second and let's talk student debt. Yeah. You've been very prideful in making Francis Marion affordable. You've talked a lot about who you believe aspires to be a student at Francis Marion. And you, you talk about socioeconomic challenges, the PD. And you, I mean, I know you've lived that. It's very near and dear and authentic in, in, in where you come from. Um, but there's no denying the reality. I mean, math is math. And we're at about $1.7 trillion of student debt. Um, it's not sustainable. You know that. I know that. As a college president, what sorts of changes or deviations do you think need to be made? 
We're about to announce something this week that's very, very distinctive. We call it our premier pledge. We've made it possible this year, we put together, we built this out of our budget the last two years. We're going to we're going to be able to take every Pell student that that's admitted on on, on on their on our campus or freshman year and every first generation college student and we're going to find a way to cover their first year tuition. We're going to find a way for every first generation college student who comes to us and is admitted, we're going to find a way to cover their first year tu tuition and every Pell student. Okay? Do you know how how big that is? To the family out there that looked like the Carter family eight years ago, okay? And we're thinking, how do we get our kids to how do we get our kid to college that first year? It's on us. We're gonna find a way to do that for every kid that comes to us. That's probably gonna cost us between half a million and a million dollars next year. We've raised the money privately. We put it together from savings and reserves to be able to cover that with regard to those groups of students next year. Here's the logic. Yes, it's the first year. If we can get them there the first year, if we can give them the taste of, 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 of the ripe apple, if we can show them the golden ring the first year, if their fathers and mothers can sit at home and say, my son's going to Francis Marion the first year, and I don't have to worry about a single dollar worth of debt. How well does that take you down the road? I'm very proud of that program. How important is the Francis Marion Foundation oh, it's to the existence of the university? Critically important to us. I mean, it's, it's you know, Explain we... Explain what the foundation is for those well, who don't know. The foundation is a 501c3 that's tied to the university where people can make contributions, and those contributions predominantly at Francis Marion go to support scholarships, okay? You know, we've had a lot of people in this community work with us on various things. We had Reamer King came in and worked with us for a number of years starting our first-generation college fund and, and contributed very generously himself. Sompom Crackett has come in and helped us with regard to medical, Dr. Sompom Crackett, medical and health programs across the, the board. Both hospitals have been very generous contributors, especially McLeod and nursing scholarships and the like. They, they've all been very, very supportive. But the story I like to tell, you know, is, is my friend Darla Moore. And, 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 you know, you tell Darla Moore stories at great peril. Okay, you tell Darla Moore stories at great peril. Darla Moore is one of the most generous and decent people I've ever met in my life. But but I, I decided early on I would never ask Miss Moore for money because she and I were good friends. And I didn't want I didn't want to in any way compromise that friendship by putting that friendship into a donor recipient relationship. But one day we're talking, and Darla said, you know, Fred, I've been thinking, I need to do something for Francis Marion. So I'm going to give you, for scholarship support, for first-generation scholarship support, I'm going to give you a million dollars. I said, Darla, she said, a year for five years to kick off your 
first-generation scholarship support. So right now, we're in our second year of 33 Darla Moore scholars on our campus who have every dime of their tuition, every dime of their room and board paid, and the bulk of those kids are first-generation college students, and every one of those kids, we're hopeful before they graduate, will have the ability not only to get a great education at Francis Marion and a great uh, major, but they get to spend time with Darla Moore every year, talking about many of the lessons Miss Moore has learned in uh, life's lessons and business lessons, and we're hopeful every one of those kids will get abroad sometime during the course of their four years. Because, man, this, the next most important thing for a first-generation college, the most important thing is to get the best education you can. The next most important thing is to try to travel abroad sometime during those four years. Because, man, you get abroad, I don't care where you go, you get France, Germany, Ireland, you go abroad, your life will change immeasurably. And you'll continue to travel the remainder of your life. One, one of the issues higher education has had to deal with is the declining amount of money the General Assembly allocates to higher education. Do you understand the quandary they find themselves in? I do, but let me say this. The last two or three years, uh, both Merle Smith, Bruce Bannister, and uh, Harvey Peeler have been very, very supportive of higher ed and funding uh or what, what they call tuition mitigation money. We'll give you this money if you agree not to raise tuition. So, you know, for six years, we haven't raised tuition a dime because the General Assembly's been providing us that money. But I do get it. I, I Look, I, I get it. You know, you, 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 you can't, I can't come over and ask you for a, a bowl of sugar and then stick my finger in your eye before I go home with that bowl of sugar, okay? I mean, I, it, it requires you to understand the pressures and expectations and constituency demands placed on General Assembly. I'm not talking about ideological stuff, okay? I, I think there's no place in society for the banning of books. I think there's no place in society for controlling academic freedom and free speech on campus. That's what makes this country great. But I will tell you this, I think we need to be responsible about the way we spend money, the way we, we deport ourselves with regard to those expenditure of dollars. Look, people don't expect to drive onto a college campus and see streets of gold, okay? They expect to see a well-run institution, frankly, where some of the maybe furniture in the president's office looks a little worn. It looks a little ragged, okay? I think you asked me one time, you came and visited with me, and you asked me, how old's this carpet? And I looked at you and said, Ken, it's not old enough. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I need to scrub it a little more so it looks a little more worn. Well, you've always been very fiscally responsible. Uh, last question, and I appreciate your time, and I mean this sincerely. Your 25-year tenure speaks for itself as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I'm not saying that just because you're sitting here. I think you're one of the best college presidents in all of America, but you're not going to be there forever. I don't have any idea how long you're going to be there, but you won't be there another 25 years. What advice do you give the person that comes after Dr. Fred Carter? Well, the, the, the first thing I would argue is this. 
I have a lot of colleagues that spend a lot of time wringing their hands talking about how difficult these jobs are. I don't get it. This is the big, best gig I've ever had in my life. I get, I get all this wonderful faculty that I get to work with. I get to work with these, these students who don't so desperately need an education every single day. And frankly, I get to walk home every night from work, okay? It's a wonderful, wonderful job. And when I go to sleep at night, really don't have to worry too much about what I'm going to do the next day. And if I have trouble sleeping, do you know what I do? I don't count sleep. I count the 25,000 degrees that our kids have gotten over the years. 25,000 degrees. So one advice I would give to my board in hiring a next president, hiring my successor, is find a man or woman who really loves the job. Not somebody who's going to come in and fret about, oh, I can't, you know, I, this parent visited me today and was difficult, or this faculty member was difficult. Man, these are great jobs. The, you just got to understand, being a college president is a wonderful job. I thank God every single day that I had the opportunity to get this kind of job. And by the way, I would never have gotten this kind of job if I didn't have a mom and dad with a limited education who really wanted their son to get an education now, now I got to pay it back. That's very well said. Thank you, my friend. Thank you.